Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to Friday Night Live with me Hafi Shaban on this uh, absolutely lovely Friday afternoon on the 28th of June 2019 right corresponding to the I believe the 24th of Shawwal is it the 24th of Shawwal I think it is right 24th of Shawwal yes I think so yep uh, as usual, we are broadcasting uh, live uh, to Luton uh, and the surrounding areas on 105.1 FM uh, and also nationally. Nationally also broadcasting uh, via our sister stations in Sheffield Link FM, uh, Peterborough Salam, uh, Derby, Nottingham and of course you can tune in via the Inspire FM app as always and uh, via the Inspire FM website also. Right? And uh, of course last but not least there is the live Facebook stream uh, where you can actually not only listen to us but also watch us live from the studio inshallah. Most importantly uh, do try to join today's debate and today's discussion inshallah ta'ala got a couple of good topics for you to uh, get your heads around and get your thoughts across to our panel and our uh, and our listeners as, as usual, 01582481822. 01582481822 is the number here in the studio uh, to speak to us directly and live. Our always preferred option and preferred uh, way of speaking to, to our guests and to speaking to our uh, presenters. Uh, 0777948182. 0777948182 is the number for the social uh, media messages, your SMS and your WhatsApp messages. Uh, and of course, we will take those also if you want to prefer to speak to us via social media. Uh, but it is uh, Friday Night Live and uh, with me in the studio, mashallah, it's always great to have a, a co-presenter and uh, today, mashallah, I have a, a slightly d- a new co-presenter who hasn't been in the studio for a while, mashallah, uh, brother Dr. Abu uh, Bakar Cooper. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome uh, back to the studio, mashallah, well, bu- welcome back to the Friday Night Live show with me, uh, brother. Yeah, mashallah, it's been, a, it's been quite a long time since we've been together, mashallah. Yeah, alhamdulillah, it's always great, mashallah. So as I, as I was saying earlier, offline, we need you in the studio a bit more, Sheikh, inshallah. Yeah, he's twisting my arm, folks. Inshallah. Right, so we're going to be discussing a, a number of stories uh, this evening, inshallah, right? So we're going to be discussing, uh, I mean, I mean, firstly, what, what's been making the headlines uh, for yourself, uh, Dr. Abu Bakr, right? So, I mean, I was just following, uh, looking at some of the news headlines earlier with regards to the G20 summit. It's been a bit quiet. I mean, I, normally it makes a lot of headlines, a lot of demonstrations oh, happening. There's, 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 there's just been a stare out between uh, Mrs. May and President. Uh, President Putin. There's been a what? There's been a stare out. Stare out. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. more a stare out. Yeah, they, they, they shook hands, and he. It was reported he he sort of tried a half smile. Right. And right. Uh, and I was literally I was listening to it on the radio yeah. uh, on the BBC radio on the way in, right. and apparently Mrs May gave him a harsh, firm stare back. Yeah, I think that's on the back end of a, a number of words that have been exchanged to to the commentators and to the, and to the press with regards to uh, the Russian for you know policies, and uh, of course I'm. 
I'm, I'm not surprised by that. But anyway, the, the G20 summit is is currently going on in in um, in Osaka in uh, in in Japan, right? So that's happening at the moment. There's a couple of stories that you were you you were picking up uh, for me earlier on, Doctor uh, Abubakar, right? But yeah, we, we I, will be discussing them later in detail. But what yeah, we making the headlines came, for you? I came across a couple of things. Um, large number of um, Tory party members. So, mm. we're, so we're not talking about lay people here. Tory party members. Right. Uh, anything up to two thirds. This was reported in the Independent. Believe that parts of Britain are run by Sharia law. Right. All right. All right. That, the, the laughter is so loud we can even hear it in the studio, folks, right, from right. outside. That's interesting. We'll be discussing that. And I wonder why <laughs> why those comments are suddenly being made at this particular moment in time. All right. So a number of stories making the headlines, and we will be covering some of those stories later in in the latter part of the show. But of course, the key and the lead stories this evening on Friday Night Live is we're going to be running with the the current tensions between Iran and the U.S. Right. The Iran and the U.S. tensions and relationships seems to have you know really you know dropped quite to a quite considerable levels uh, and there's been a, a you know quite a significant war of words between the two nations uh, Washington Tehran uh, escalations with Trump this week threatening Iran's obliteration after President Hassan Rouhani called the White House actions mentally retarded right uh, so I mean so, so, so quite strong words but of, they uh, put uh, seriously I d- if anyone if anyone has got an answer there mm. ring in and, and have a chat with us yeah he i'm talking about president trump yeah he pulled out of the deal yeah yeah he so he broke so the deal doesn't exist he pulled out of the deal he broke the deal right so what does he expect well, what does he what expect, does he expect? Right. you know you, you have a deal with the country to say okay you're not going to yeah. develop you're not, you're yeah. not going to uh, do yeah. any processing towards yeah. weapons, yeah. and you pull out of it. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be. That's one of the elements we're gonna be covering, uh, Doctor Abu Bakr, right? Uh, but we we have got a number of guests that we're gonna be discussing this subject matter with. And as you say, the tensions between Iran and the U.S. are almost at an all-time low. A number of reasons for that. Uh, we've seen uh, in in the last couple of weeks a number of explosions, a number of oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and U.S accusing Iran. Then we saw Iran forcing, uh, shooting down a US military drone over the Straits of Hormuz, which uh, of course uh, US claims was international waters. Iran says it was over its own territory. And it seems to be escalating even, even far greater towards the kind of drumbeats of war mm. according to some of the commentators but but let's let's go straight to one of our panelists uh, and and guess it's professor scott lucas who's a professor of american studies at the university of birmingham i believe we've got professor scott lucas on on the line now uh, professor scott lucas uh, wel- welcome to friday night life well good evening to you both uh, good evening. Good, good evening to you too, and thank you very much, firstly, for for joining us this evening. We are discussing the growing tensions between Iran and the U.S., or is it the U.S. and Iran? Uh, what, what, what do you make of it? There's plenty of that's been written by the commentators, and we'll we'll, we'll try to go into some of that in, in a bit more detail. But uh, as an observer, uh, as an academic, and as, as a commentator, what's your take on it? Well, I think you set it up very well, which is we have to really set the key point as when the Trump administration decided, uh, in effect, to rip up uh, U.S. participation in the nuclear deal, which had been signed in 2015. Uh, That deal was between not only Iran and the United States, but also 
uh, three European countries, Britain, France, and Germany, uh, as well as Russia and China. Uh, mm. It was a deal which took a couple of years to negotiate after more than a decade, really, of tension about Iran's nuclear program and whether it might have military capability. And what that deal was, was it was like a safety net. Uh, it didn't, by any means, solve the problems in the Middle East yeah. uh, or in the Persian Gulf. But it sort of looked, took, it took a pawn off the chessboard. We're not going to worry about nuclear escalation. Hmm. Now, when the Trump administration uh, withdrew from the deal, it not only put the pawn back in, it sort of threw the chessboard up in the air and said, let's see what falls, because there are some members of the Trump administration uh, notably a man named John Bolton, who's the National Security Advisor, who I believe want regime change in Iran. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's not just to, to renegotiate with Iran, to revise the deal. It is really they want to get rid of the supreme leader and right. the system. Right. Uh, I, I, I mean, we'll, we'll go into Iran. We'll go into what, what the U.S. You know, end game, potential end game is. But, I mean, I, I want to just start off with, with the U.S., you know, kind of character and, and, and attitude here, because, I mean, all right, you're referring to, you know, Dr. Abu Bakr, you went straight into, you know, the U.S.'s position and attitude towards the U the, the nuke deal with Iran, right? Yeah. But it's, that's not a new, you know, a kind of a, a behavioral pattern from the U.S. we're seeing. We saw the Paris Climate Accords of 2015. We saw the Kyoto Protocol, 1997. They're just coming in, that, that kind of unilateral attitude by the U.S. to just go on and, you know, these, these kind of agreements which take years to, to kind of conclude for, ju just well, unilaterally go away and, and disregard this, it, it. If you compare the British political system with the American political system, mm. with its tripartite system of presidential elective, uh, sorry, executive mm. and the, the House and the Congress, yeah. how, it, how is it that you have something that has been signed off into law by the, by, by the country mm. and agreed on, and then just literally on a whim of one person yeah. Totally ignoring the the house, both houses. Yeah. Does away with everything. International standards. Uh, uh, ignores, ignores, mm. ignores all of their allies, and yeah. we're talking we're talking about the whole of Europe, 500 million people. Well, well, well let's come on to that, uh, uh, Professor Scott Lucas. Uh, the the U.S. attitudes towards these the so-called international. Uh, treaties that that are signed up, and then and this particular the the nuclear agreement with with Iran just unilaterally torn up and and, and put uh, you know put to the side. Uh, I think there's it's a great question. I think there's one important point, and that is this uh, agreement with Iran in 2015 was not a treaty, uh, right. because to get a treaty in the United States, you actually have to present it to the Congress, and the Congress has to ratify it. And despite all the hard work the Obama administration did, and it was a, quite an achievement to get this agreement, they weren't sure that Congress would ratify it. So they presented it almost as an executive agreement. Right. And that made it vulnerable to Donald Trump just signing an executive order and saying, I'm undoing this. Right, right. Now, is so it part of a... Has, has anyone in the House kicked up a fuss over this then? Oh, yes. I mean, there, there is, is quite a bit of, uh, mm. uh, not only in the House, but in the Senate, but it's primarily amongst Democrats from the opposition party. Mm. Uh, it was notable that we, of course, have had the opening debates for uh, the 20, well, 20 of the Democratic candidates to become president. And a few of them did say, yes, I would revisit this agreement from day one and uh, re-engage with Iran. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris is one person to watch over this. Yeah. But 
to, to expect the Senate to overturn this? No, there's, there's no way that uh, while Trump is in office, Congress will defy him, nor is it really subject to a legal challenge. So mm-hmm. I think we are where we are until Donald Trump um, is voted out of office, if he's voted out of office in November 2020. Right. So, 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 so that, that was the first point, which, which is the U.S. attitude, right, uh, towards the, whether it's a treaty or whether it's an agreement, because in, in this case, a treaty, but previously, you know, I've, I've cited the, the Kyoto Protocol and, and, and the other, you know, climate accords that, that have been signed. And, and, you know, again, you know, the kind of attitude that we've seen from the U.S., doesn't stand well, I would imagine, in in the in, in the international community, right? When when people are looking at the U.S. attitudes, and, and and definitely doesn't give the U.S. the kind of moral grounds to go around talking about international compliance with you know agreements and and the United Nations protocols and and so forth. Uh, Professor Scott. Yeah, I I mean I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there's an interesting backdrop. We had this type of tension in general between the uh, George W. Bush administration mm-hmm. and allies. You may remember at the time of the Iraq War when almost everyone opposed it, yeah. except for Tony Blair. Uh, but really, from day one of the Trump administration, what has been different is is that Donald Trump is, is someone who does not care about allies. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't really care about a U.S. foreign policy to be honest with you, unless he personally thinks he benefits. Right. And that means that even the American alliance with NATO has been under a great deal of tension, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, I, I think Donald Trump and his uh, advisors like John Bolton, um, when they decided they were going to withdraw from the treaty, they really didn't care what the Europeans thought. But I need to add this is more than a one-way thing, because yeah. uh, I think it's too easy to say, oh, it, it's all on the U.S., and look, Iran just simply is there as a passive actor. There. The Iranians themselves, or at least under the current leadership, do present some issues about getting back to the agreement. Uh, Let me just give you one example. The European powers Mm. very much want to maintain this deal. And what they've said to the Iranians is, look, we will help you bypass the U.S. sanctions, you know, to try to choke off the Iranian oil exports. We'll buy your oil from you through a special mechanism which doesn't use dollars. But to do it... You've got to know that we have concerns about some things, such as your missile program. Yeah. We do have concerns about your activities in the Middle East. You yeah. can think about the Syria conflict. You yeah. can think about the situation yeah. in Lebanon. Yeah. And we do have concerns that, allegedly, some of your officials have been involved with bombings and assassinations in Europe in the last few years. Yeah. And the Iranians, rather than taking that as a way to say, all right, let's negotiate this. We will negotiate about a missile program. They just simply said, humiliating conditions, and they did not accept this economic agreement that could have really separated the U.S. and Europe. So it is an issue where I think the Trump administration started uh, this current confrontation, Mm. but certainly you have had an increasing hard line by some Iranian elements that means that uh, on both sides, we're moving away from any type of right. agreement. But, you know, my, my question uh, on, on the back end of that, Professor Scott uh, Lucas, is, is is the nuclear deal, right, and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, right, and, 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 and scrapping that, uh, a red herring, and, and what's the bigger game here, right? So you, you mentioned in terms of regional, you know, uh, ambition and the expansionist, uh, expansionist kind of influence that Iran seeks with, within the region. Uh, that, that's been commentators that have talked about the Shia Crescent, the Crescent and and, and and Iran's, you know, push to to actually, you know, consolidate that. Uh, that there's others who are discussing in terms of, you know, Iran's 
you know, uh, again, I'm not sure if it's a red herring, but Iran's kind of threat towards Israel and, and America trying to safeguard, you know, Iran's, oh, sorry, Israel's security. Uh, at the same time, you know, doing a handshake with Israel with regards to the current kind of plan that's been put on the table and been discussed in Bahrain for, for Palestine and Israel and, and the economic policies that are, you know, being proposed there. So I, I, is, is, is there a bigger game here at play as opposed to, you know, this, this what may be a red herring and, and the nuclear deal that's just been used at the front? There's always the bigger arena mm. that goes all the way back to the Islamic Revolution of 1979. Yeah. Because this was an Islamic Revolution where the leadership wanted to set an example for countries, including in the Middle East, uh, not just Shia Muslim countries, but yeah. also all Islamic countries. Uh, the United States, of course, has been a long-term power with influence in the region. But I think what has happened, and we, and we could go through a whole history of that, yeah. but I think there's two events that really sort of reconfigured this. The first is, is the Iraq War of 2003, um. because in that disaster that followed, that, you know, that man-made tragedy, you had the Americans who were under a great deal of pressure under Iraq, uh, in Iraq, because they had gone into the country, occupied it, and then were being faced with an insurgency. And the Iranians were trying to increase their influence in Iraq at that mm. point. Um, and then the second event is, is was generally the, the uprisings across the Arab world, but especially the Syria conflict, because what happened is, is that the Iranians really put all their chips into maintaining the regime of Bashar al-Assad, even though that I think that regime, I have to be honest with you, has been a very deadly one. Um, you know, has, yeah, but that's, that's in reality, you can't just say that that's just in, at the hands of I Iran. Let's face it, the, the, the reality is that the real reason Bashar al-Assad is still there is Putin. That's the real reason well, he hasn't fallen. Well, the initial reason is the Iranians. I mean, and, and let me, I, I, I need to explain Correct. why. You know, the uprising started in, in 2011, uh, and very much a, an uprising on the ground. It wasn't one that the Americans came in and created. But, of course, it turned into a military conflict by really the early 2012, um, when the opposition uh, had the Free Syrian Army, which would claim it was defending uh, the uprising. What happened is, is that the Syrian army was almost shattered uh, by the autumn of 2012 because of defections, uh, because of losses in conflicts. And the Iranians went in and said, we are going to build you a militia of 50,000 people on the ground. It's yeah. called the National Defense Forces. If the Iranians had not done that, I think the Assad regime probably couldn't have maintained it. Yeah. Uh, now, here, I'm not, I'm not making this a right or wrong in terms of what the Iranians did. I'm just simply telling you yeah, sure. that although I think the Assad regime is responsible for this, the Iranians did make their decision they were going to go in on that side. And, of course, that meant that because Syria has been like this very poisonous event at the center of the Middle East, yeah. it does affect Bahrain. It did affect Yemen, which is another horrible conflict where the Saudis led the intervention in 2015. It did affect, of course, Lebanon, which is next door. And we shouldn't forget that all of this, in this kaleidoscope that we have, we still have the Israel-Palestine issue. Right. So, so where Iran supports certain Palestinians. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that, Professor Scott Lucas. We're just going to come back to you. Uh, listeners, this is Friday Night Live, and we are currently discussing the, the U.S.-Iran tensions. Uh, we'd really like to hear from our, from our listeners. Uh, 01582 for your SMS or your WhatsApp messages. We do currently have on the line Professor Scott Lucas, who's a professor of American studies at the University of Birmingham given his expert view 
on the tensions and some of the background and the context to the tensions. We've also now got on the line, I'm, I'm glad to say, we also have Muhammad Atif, uh, Voice of America, I believe, directly from the from the state. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in uh, Muhammad Atif, who's been patiently listening into the conversation for the last couple of minutes, into the, the dialogue and into the discussion. Uh, Muhammad Atif, Salaamu Alaikum and welcome to Friday Night Live. We are discussing Iran, Iran-U.S. relationships and the current tension between the two states. We're, we're not, we're not hearing a very positive uh, view and and uh, and, uh, and really a kind of an interpretation of what's been happening on, from the U.S. perspective, especially the the throwing away of the treaty, the agreement with, with the Iranians, uh, and now having a very harsh kind of attitude towards Iran, and then also with the European partners. I must add, at the moment, a lot of pressure is saying you're either with uh, with us or you're with Iran. How, how are you reading things from from the U.S., uh, uh, Mohammed Atif? Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, in large, I agree to what your uh, other guest has said about Iran's role in the region, and that's probably the bigger issue here. Uh, it's Iran's role in the region, and it's not just one dimension. The U.S. relationship or the U.S. pressure on Iran is not just uh, uh, the U.S. pressure. It's the pressure from U.S. allies in the region on the U.S. Uh, regarding Iran. Uh, uh, I mean, we've talked about Yemen, we've talked about Syria. Uh, we all know where Yemen is today. It's all because I- Iran's support to the Houthis. Um, and we know that in the, in the region, Iran is supporting uh, uh, Shia militias. Iran is supporting terrorism in Pakistan as well. Pakistan's prime minister went to Iran and said this, that it has to stop. I have... Uh, but, but Mohammed Atif, hasn't Iran been hasn't Iran been the complicit you know, a partner with the U.S. also when it comes to Iraq and stabilizing Iraq. It's, it's been a quite an, a, a key component for, with, with the U.S. backdoor diplomacy for Afghanistan. Uh, and, and, and also in terms of even, even Syria, I mean, there's been a lot of back, backdoor, you know, diplomacy and, 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 and work hand in hand with the Americas, even in terms of Syria. Well, uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, Iran's role in Afghanistan is not that constructive. Uh, Iran's support to groups uh, in Afghanistan is very clear, and most recently the U.S. Secretary of State in Kabul said that stability in Afghanistan is also in interest of Iran. So it was a clear message to Iran that they have to stop what they're doing. They have to stop supporting Taliban and other militia groups. You have to understand one thing. Iran's policy is not just a foreign policy. Iran's policy is a policy of uh, empowering Shia communities in the region. So, uh, I mean, there's there's another uh, dimension and another direction to Iran's policy in the region. And uh, what your other guest said about uh, Syria is absolutely right. It's absolutely true. If there was any other government, Iran's role has uh, would not have been that powerful in Syria. So we have to consider that too. And when you want to talk about U.S. policy towards Iran now and why there is so much pressure, uh, I think President Trump uh, is actually, um, uh, you know, heading towards a direction where there is no other way for Iran, where, where there is no, uh, you know, um, uh, other way of uh, running its economy, uh, as you rightly said, that uh, U.S. pressure on Europeans as well, you know, the European allies, uh, 
said that they will buy uh, Iran oil not through dollars but through other means. And uh, Mohammed Atif, Mohammed Atif, for, for for you and, and from, from from what you're hearing amongst commentators and writers in 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 the U.S. media, you know well, what's the end game here? I mean, it's not just about the nuclear program, is it? And and the nuclear deal here, right? What what's the bigger game? And 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 many commentators are saying that they're not going to be able to achieve the regime change. You know, uh, the, you know that they may have done it in, in other, other countries in, in around the around the Gulf or in the Middle East. So, what is Trump after, really? Here, so uh, uh, you have to understand one thing that there is not a uh, there are two powerhouses in Iran. It's not just the elected government; it's the Khamenei. Khamenei has a different vision for Iran, and the elected government has a different vision for Iran. And we've seen that conflict in the past between Khamenei and the elected president of Iran. So uh, I think at the moment, uh, the goal here is to stop Iran from putting money in terrorism. The goal uh, here is to stop Iran from expanding its civil war strategy in the region. Um, I, I think for that, it has to the, the policy has to be very clear. The pressure has to be just so that Iran can actually take a decision to negotiate and stop fueling civil wars in the region. Right, Professor Scott Lucas, you heard Mohammed Atif. You know, what's your take on uh, uh, Iran fueling terrorism in in the region? I mean, that, that you know, Qatar has been accused of that for for a while now in the region, and I don't see similar rhetoric against Qatar as we're seeing for against Iran. Well. Um I think I would say probably two things uh, after that very interesting comment by Mohammed Atif. I think the first is, just as I said, right. we Professor should Professor Scott uh, Lucas, unfortunately, I've got to interject. We're, we're about to go into a commercial break. I didn't realize. Uh, is, is it possible to, for us to continue this conversation in a couple of minutes when we come back from the commercial break? Glad. I look forward to joining you. In uh, uh, fantastic. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Mohammed Atif, also, if you can just hold on a couple of minutes, we've got to go into a mandatory commercial break in 30 seconds, and then when we're back, we'll continue with that question. Sure. I really appreciate that. Right, uh, listeners, we are about to go into a commercial break. Whilst I was gonna, uh, whilst we were discussing, we've had another guest come into the studio. We'll introduce our guest in uh, to our listeners in a short while. Uh, this is Friday Night Live, and you are with me, Hafi Shaban, and also uh, Dr. Abu Bakr in the studio. We are discussing the U.S.-Iran tensions, and we will continue to discuss those tensions when we come back in a couple of minutes. So don't go away. Until then, Assalamualaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome to welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafi Shaban, on this uh, lovely Friday afternoon, uh, late afternoon on the 28th of June. Uh, with me in the studio is uh, Dr. Abu Bakr, and we also have uh, Brother Zafar, who's now joined us here in the studio. Assalamualaikum, Brother Zafar. Welcome back to uh, to the Friday Night Live studio. MashaAllah, Jazakallah for joining us this afternoon. We were discussing in the first half an hour the current Iran and uh, US tensions that have been flaring up over the last couple of weeks the war the, the, the war of words has really built up and now we're seeing uh, headlines you know whether you know people are discussing war mongering or whether people are discussing the the unilateral you know US attitude and arrogance of you know you know
know, throwing away an agreement that has been uh, signed up previously uh, by previous administrations and which pretty much, you know, safeguarded and ensured a good uh, build-up of relationships between the US and Iran. We do still have uh, Professor Scott Lucas, who's uh, very kindly uh, been on the line for the last couple of minutes whilst we've gone into a commercial break and we were discussing the, the so-called Iranian menace in the region uh, that, uh, you know, Mohammed Atif from the Voice of America was putting uh, to the table in terms of a discussion. And, and Professor Scott Lucas, you were just on the verge of, of answering that question before I had to interject and we had to go into the commercial break. Uh, thank you very much for holding on. Uh, shall we go straight back into, uh, into, into the point that you were making earlier? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I found Mohammed Asif's comments very interesting from Washington, that yeah. point of view. Um, and I think I would respond with two points. And, and I say this as a very long-standing critic of the Iranian foreign policy mm. and of the Iranian regime's repression of human rights inside the country. I think the first point is, uh, just as we shouldn't reduce everything to the Trump administration, we shouldn't reduce this all to an Iranian support of terrorism. Uh, the conflict in Yemen, for example, where you had many tens of thousands of civilians killed and millions who are at risk, wasn't started just because Iran backed the Houthi insurgency. It's way more complex than that. Uh, the issues we could talk about regarding Israel and Palestine uh, were not just simply because Iran has backed certain Palestinian groups, as mm. I'm sure you folks know. Yeah. Uh, and we could say the same about Bahrain, where an uprising was put down. Iran didn't cause that situation. Uh, Iran has not caused, has not been the primary cause of the instability in Lebanon. So I think we have to be aware of that even when we might say, look, on a case-by-case -case basis, both sides, both sides should try to do something to deal with the situation in Syria or in Yemen rather than supporting regimes that kill lots of people. And I think the second point is just the fundamental that we started off with, and that is if you want to deal with these issues in the Middle East, it is far better to start with the standpoint of having a nuclear deal and taking that issue off yeah. the table. Yeah. Because when you put that, when you rip up the deal, yeah. what the Iranian regime is going to do is, it's not going to be like people are going to come out onto the streets and suddenly say, we want to get rid of the Supreme Leader. Yeah. And it's not going to be, we suddenly want to reform our foreign policy. Instead, the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guards, the military unit, are going to say, we have to take a harder line. Yeah. We've got to show the enemy. And that means you've got Iran becoming this more repressive system in the name of sticking together. And I think the, the, that vision from Washington was a little bit troubling because I think the view is, oh, if we can just change the regime in Iran by breaking their economy, mm. we'll solve everything in the Middle East. Yeah. When, you, when you put the sanctions on, the first and foremost victims mm. are not going to be the Iranian regime who will try to dig in even more. It's the Iranian people who are going to pay the cost. Yeah. You know, I, I think very interesting points. I mean, uh, ripping uh, ripping the deal, I, I don't think is any way of actually then, you know, smoothing out the process for addressing the Syrian issue. I mean, if the, the Americans wanted to address the Syrian issues, they could have addressed that long time ago. And they, they don't really, well, well, Iran's a, a key component in that. But I don't think ripping the deal is, is the best avenue and, and the approach to actually address that particular issue. Uh, but uh, Professor Scott Lucas, I really uh, appreciate your time and, and for holding on over the commercial break. Thank you very much for joining us this evening uh, on Friday Night Live, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you shortly in, in, the, in the near future on a similar topic. A pleasure. Peace thank to you, you and all thank, your thank you very much, Scott Lucas. Right, I want to go back to uh, Mohammed Amin for your, for, your, for, your, for your final comments in terms of Voice America. Uh, brother Mohammed Atif, in, in fact, not Mohammed Amin. Uh, Mohammed Atif, uh, what do you make in terms of next steps from here uh, in terms of uh, the, 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 the US and the Iranian uh, relationships, uh, Mohammed Atif? 
I think um, Iran has to respond in a better way now. I, I think Iran, whatever Iran has tried, has worked with President Trump's administration. Um, challenging. Um, I find America, that a bit surprising, uh, Mohammed Atif. I find that a bit surprising when you say Iran has to react a bit more positively. I mean, what, what's America doing in terms of its attitude well, of just sidelining an agreement that is, is it's been made for the last couple of years? Doesn't America have to act uh, a bit more, I, you know, gentlemanly or a bit more principled as opposed to just Iran? I, I think for America, it is very clear in American administration's view that being gentle is not going to help. That's why you see a strategy that is getting tougher and tougher day by day. And it's not just America. Like I said earlier, it's the Arab partners of America. But it's Ma Saudi Arabia. Brother Mohammed, would it, wouldn't UAE. it... Have wouldn't wouldn't it actually have made more sense at the uh, le, at the end of the day? Let's face facts. Wh whether whether the whether the deal previously had been broken by President Trump or President Obama, the fact was that the the, the, the deal was brokered by America. And wouldn't if it made wouldn't it have made more sense and show more wisdom on the world stage if before doing what he did, President Trump made an effort to go and meet this man the same as that he, that he did Kim Jong Il? I mean, wouldn't have that made more sense? Right. Wouldn't it have shown him to be uh, um, a thinking leader looking towards um, a guided positive solution rather than trying to get something through threats? Because these sort of people aren't going to respond to threats well. Um, here, here's the thing, and I want you to um, understand America's perspective in the region. America has allies in the region uh, in, in the shape of Saudi Arabia, in the shape of UAE, in the shape of Qatar, in the shape of other regional countries, and its strongest ally, Israel. Israel and Iran, they have been in conflict over, you know, over decades. Um, yes, um, we do understand that Israel's policy in terms of occupying Palestinian territory, in terms of uh, uh, putting sanctions on uh, Palestinians, uh, that is an issue. That issue is recognized not uh, only by the, the Muslim countries of the world, but European allies in the United Nations as well. The, the thing is, America has to choose between uh, the allies or Iran. I, you've, you've said that uh, President Obama was probably the leading, not, not probably, but actually he was the leading voice in, in this agreement, coming to agreement with Iran. And of course, with, uh, without America's uh, backing, the agreement would not have happened. But after, right after the agreement, Saudis were not happy with it. Saudis showed their anger to the United States. It's just that we have a different president in the White House. We have a different uh, party in the administration. Their strategy for the region is different than Democrats. So if Iran wants to be smarter, Iran has to think that what is the best way forward here by, uh, you know, just rethinking their overall regional foreign policy. Like I said earlier, yes, and I agree to the professor when he said that, you know, Iran cannot be accused for whatever is happening in Yemen or whatever is happening in Syria. But Iran is a contributor to what is happening in the region now. Iran contributes in Yemen. Iran contributes right. in Syria. Iran continues to support Hezbollah. Right. Iran continues to support sectarian terrorism in Pakistan. Right. Iran, Iran Mohammed Atif, I, 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 I think you've made your point very, very clear. 
yeah, Iran is a contributing factor in, in many, many in, to many in many elements. Uh, but then, so, so someone would argue, so is Qatar, so is Saudi, so is UAE, and they've, you know, and, and the, 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 there is, it is a complex regional uh, political game. Uh, I think I think you've made your point very clear. But uh, Mohammed Atif, unfortunately, I have to move on to a couple of other guests that I've got. But I really want to appreciate and thank you for for your time this evening for for, for joining us on Friday Night Live. Thank you very much, uh, Mohammed Atif. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, uh, folks, that was uh, Muhammad Atif from Voice of America giving us uh, his perspective in terms of the U.S. Uh, attitude and, and the U.S. perspective on things uh, and primarily focused around the Iranian so-called menace within the region and how the other you know, uh, key strategic partners of the U.S. weren't happy with the previous deal. Uh, but nevertheless, the deal was made by the previous administration and the moral ground right of, of the US not only on the nuclear deal but other previous deals that is unilaterally then decided to disregard and throw on the side it doesn't really make good standing for, for, for the US internationally I think it's completely look, lost those look, you know the, any moral ground that it has for talking about we've international agreements we've international bodies we're and, now, and complying with, the, with with those so-called agreements we're now going through we're now going through a change in Prime Minister right now, imagine if uh, Mrs. May agrees a deal as the representative of the British government. Yeah. And then if we have uh, Johnson her come successor come in, whether it's Mr. Hunt or Mr. Johnson. Yeah. And then it's and then and it's an international deal, and it's undone. Mm. Well, well, there's a way of undoing well, deals, well, isn't there? Well, you don't but, just but, well, unilaterally decide to just well, throw it. Uh, in well, the bin. no. What, what what you have to appreciate yeah. as a leader is is your standing as a country. How are you going to be viewed as a trustworthy nation? How are you ever going to be viewed as a trustworthy nation if your policies that have been been done by a previous yeah. executive president and right. are there yeah. are, and and then are un undone and then thrown up as if they're worth, worth no more than tissue paper. All right. Okay. L l let me come back to you on that. Good. 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 Good points for for our list. Good. Good points. Good. Good points for 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 our listeners. I, I'm going to move on to our next guest. Right. Let, let's get some of these experts on on, on live, uh, so our listeners can you know benefit from the expertise of our experts. We, we're, I'm going to move on to Megan O'Toole. Hopefully, I've said the name correctly. He was the Middle East and North African journalist uh, and columns editor for the Middle East Eye. Ex reporter for Al Jazeera, uh, Al Jazeera English, right? Uh, Megan, uh, welcome to Friday Night Live. Hopefully, uh, you're you're live and you can hear me clear and well. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Ah, fantastic! Thank you very much. Hopefully, I said your name correctly too. So, so we are dis debating and currently discussing the the U.S. Iranian relationships, right? Uh, and and the current tension. We've seen the, the the escalation over the last couple of weeks. We've seen the the drone being shot down. We've we've heard Trump saying that he was seconds away or minutes away from giving, uh, you know, from from attacks, you know, counter attacks to, on on the Iranians. We've uh, we've heard we've seen the the tankers being attacked and and the U.S. pointing their fingers towards Iran. And now we're, we're hearing these conversations and discussions in the G20 summit and it's been pitched as this is the last attempt to save the nuclear deal. What do you make of all of this, uh, Megan? Yeah, I mean, certainly this ratcheting up of tensions is, is quite concerning uh, from a regional perspective. Um, and I mean, it's something that we've seen coming for some time. I mean, ever since uh, Donald Trump decided to unilaterally withdraw from the nuclear deal, um, the expectation was that this would lead to 
kind of this cycle of escalation which we're seeing now. Um, the problem, of course, is that the U.S. ultimately withdrew from this deal for, for really no other reason than that Trump wanted to destroy the legacy of Barack Obama. He didn't want to keep a deal um, that uh, his opponent had made um, uh, during the previous administration. And so other than that, there was no real reason to do that. And now we're seeing uh, kind of the ramifications of that kind of reckless policy. So uh, ultimately what we've heard, I mean, as you pointed out, there's been um, a number of incidents. There have been the Gulf attacks that uh, the U.S. has been very quick to blame Iran for. Um, there's been um, this uh, strike called off at the last minute. Um, all, all of these things have been happening that have been sort of uh, leading the path towards a potential war. But we know that really that isn't what Trump wants. What he really wants out of this process uh, is to be able to craft a new deal that he can call his own, so something that he can put his own stamp on. Right. Uh, even though the old deal was working fine, Iran was complying, other partners were complying. Um, so really, it's, it's this problem that's being created for Trump trying to create his own legacy here. Right. So uh, that, that's, a very, that's a very interesting view, actually, uh, uh, Megan O'Toole. Right. Let, let me also bring in Dr. Robert, uh, who's a professor of political science at Florida Atlantic University. Uh, Dr. Robert, can, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Uh, fantastic. Welcome to Friday Night Live, right? So yeah, that's an interesting view that we're hearing from, from Megan, right? Who's a columns editor for Middle East Eye. I, is this Trump, Trump trying to create a legacy for himself and, and all of this politicking and all of this risk-taking about a legacy for, for Trump? Yes, uh, uh, I agree, you know, to a great extent uh, with Megan is that uh, mm. he wanted to have a legacy where you know, he will show, you know, to, especially to his base, that he is the one who renegotiated a deal better than the one right. negotiated with Obama. Right. Yeah, but yeah, but there is something, you know, that goes beyond that, beyond mm -hmm. the legacy. And I believe that Trump has put himself into a corner. Yeah. And this is mainly, you know, you have had an attempt, and that attempt has been going on for quite some time with some of his adv advisors, especially Bolton and Pompeo. But Bolton mainly, Giuliani, you have others in the administration, and outside the administration in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, if you look at their statements, if you look at their op-eds, if you look at what they have been talking, if you look at what they said, hmm. you know, when they went to Paris uh, during certain conferences uh, sponsored by Mujahideen al-Khulq, uh, which, was, which is an Iranian opposition based in France today, you will see that they would like to have a regime change. And this is why I always myself, right. someone Doc who is based here Dr. Robert, in, it seems in Florida, I was always worried. Right, Dr. Robert, it seems that we're losing you. It's not very clear, but I think I got your last point. Uh, I mean, I mean my, my point was going to be, I mean, it's a very, very high-risk risk strategy, right? So the current deal that has been put on the table, these additional 12-demand approach, right? Uh, the critic says essentially forcing Iran to transform its entire foreign policy, uh, you know, on, on issues such as, as vital to its national security and simply is not doable, right? It's just not on the table something that Iran will accept. So so it's almost putting a, a deal which Iran's not going to accept, a very high-risk policy, driving towards more warmongering, not going to help tensions in the region, you know, and uh, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it a recipe for disaster and another war? I mean, even when you're talking about a change of administration or a change of regime change, right, there's not much of an alternative option on the table for, for, uh, for the U.S. in terms of Iran. Uh, uh, Megan, what, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 12 points you mentioned, 
that is sort of the equivalent of asking for total capitulation. And, you know, another situation that it kind of um, harkens back to is the Qatar blockade, where Qatar was also given a list of demands that were simply yeah. um, demands that it could not, absolutely not agree to um, without giving up its sovereignty in full. So, I mean, it certainly is a dangerous situation, and it, it's leading down a path um, that is not going anywhere good. I think the fact that we that we got, actually got this close uh, to a strike, an airstrike that could have killed dozens of people um, and that, you know, Trump allegedly called it off within within 10 minutes. Perhaps this was all talk and it was a threat. But at the same time, the fact that we've actually reached at this point uh, is very, very concerning, I think. Right. So, so Dr. Robert, wh- where do we go next, right? So we're at, we're at, we're at this standoff, right? So we, we, we've currently got this G20 happening in Japan. There's conversations going on in, in, in Japan at the moment. There's a lot of pressure that's been put on the European nations in terms of you're either with us or you're with them. I've heard that rhetoric somewhere before, I believe, right? What happens, what happens next here? Well, what happens next is that, you know, Trump has to put a certain line in the sand vis-a-vis his advisors, and he has to be very clear with them and say, listen, don't push me to war. And that's exactly what he has done. And I know that, you know, from reports that came from Washington, he told them, listen, yes, I want to put sanctions on Iran. I would like to do certain changes, but I don't want to go, you know, uh, into a war or a confrontation with Iran. And -hmm. there is something here to be said. He is also, you have certain, if you look now at the statements coming from different Arab leaders, from different European leaders, but especially from the Arab leaders. Look at the statement from the foreign minister of the of United Arab Emirates. You see now some kind of a little bit softening of their of their position. And what do I mean that you know you have some kind of an opening here where you can go and negotiate a deconflicting commission, a deconflicting process where mm. it could be negotiated between between United States, the Arabs, and Iran, or between United States, Russia, Arab, and Iran. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's more. Why? Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably going to be more Russia and, I, and China, you know, uh, aiding and, and bringing yeah, about yeah, an agreement as opposed to the Gulf states. You know, well, well, the Gulf states, you have Oman, so mainly if they're going to meet, they're going to meet in Oman. You have the right. Kuwait also on board, and this is something could happen. And why I say that? Because already we did the secret contacts with the Iranians through Oman, and we did them also indirectly with the Russians in Syria. Right. So, so you have a parallel channel. And I know that Trump doesn't want a war now, especially as he enters into his, to his election campaign. Uh, yeah. But having said that, yeah. but having said that, Megan is absolutely right in that the situation in the Gulf is extremely, extremely dangerous. Yes. And if you look at the war, for example, in 2006 between Hezbollah and Israel, mm. by miscalculation. So this is where I am extremely worried, and I really would like to see some kind of a movement, some kind of a push, so as to have some kind of a deconflicting mechanism at the mm. time being, until to see what's going to happen with the administration, mainly, right. you know, the elections of right. the United States. Yeah. All right. So a, a very good point. I mean, uh, we've got a couple of minutes left, so may- maybe perhaps a last question. I mean, I mean, you are right in terms of a lot of commentators also commenting that the, uh, going down the path of war just before, you know, the election year or coming up to an election year no, is not going to help his chances with, 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 with getting re-elected. So that, that's one point. Not to mention the fact that you talk about the legacy and then this is a man who came on 
the on the card of you know enough of you know these external wars, right? I'm not going to take America to 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 war, but yet we find exactly. ourselves we find ourselves you know warmongering again, right? Now at, at the same exactly. time, I, I get Megan's point with regards to Trump trying to build a legacy for himself. I, I see that, and I think it's 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 a new point which which I, which I see. But there's also been commentary, right, with regards to Iran coming on board with China on the on the BRI initiative, right? Uh, and 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 is, is this something to try to you know put some pressure on on the Iranians on, on on that front with regards to you know the 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 Belt Road initiative with the, with the, with China and Iran coming coming together uh, and uh, you know maybe perhaps the US trying to I, I don't know derail that to to, to some extent. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you are talking to me or to me? Yes, Sorry. yes, yourself, Doctor Robert. Uh, it's to me. Well, it, it, well, well. You have to understand something about China. Mm. China, it's a project. Mainly, it's all this big Silk Road, you know, and big project in the Middle East. Mainly, is mainly based on they target few countries, and this is where the Chinese have been thus far, you know, good in doing this. Mainly speaking, with multiple countries, even so, those countries are at odds with each other. For example, they have a huge project with Saudi Arabia. At the same time, they have a huge project with Iran. And at the same time, you have a huge project with Israel. And these are, if you look at their project, these are the recipients of large, you know, mm. projects going on. Right. So from, 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 from where you, from the standpoint and the way you ask me this question, I believe, yes, China could play a role. Yes, indeed, China could play a role. Could play a role, and it could play a beneficial role especially in securing, you know, the navigation, mm. uh, the access, especially in the Gulf. Okay. So yes, I, I say uh, China is a welcome, uh, you know, actor in the region and is a welcome actor, uh, you know, whereby even, even if you look at the statement as from, uh, of uh, Trump, he mentioned that, okay, China, why is not China being involved? Why other countries are not being involved? Yes. And here this is where China could go and could create some kind of a mechanism with the help of Russia or without, but of right. course with the United States. All right, Doctor. So I Rob think it's a welcome. It's a it's a it's a welcome thing. Thank you very much, Doctor. Robert. Okay, okay, Megan. Last question to yourself. A similar question. What's your What's your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with all of the points just made. Um, obviously, for the U.S., uh, the biggest concern, is, along with Saudi Arabia, is that. Iran is gaining more influence in general. So, of course, mm. ties with China are a concern. Um, you know, uh, Iran's influence in Yemen and Syria. All of these things are concerning uh, to the U.S. Uh, they want to limit that power, and that is part of the, part of the reason that uh, this is all happening. Now, of course, another concern here is that Trump is not necessarily that attuned to the regional politics, and so he does. Um, uh, Figures such as Bolton and Pompeo have his ear. Now they've been driving for regime change and uh, you know um, war for decades at this point. Um, just just out so of interest, fact, just out of interest, Megan, in terms of regime change, what, what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives to regime change? In Iran, from from the current administration. Sorry, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. All right, I, I mean we're running out of time to be honest with you. But what I was saying, what I was saying is, they are not going to be able to force the regime. Yeah, change. exactly. And, and what would be the alternative? You know that they are, you know, that they're going to propose to to the current administration in Iran. Oh, that they would propose. Now. Well, there I is nothing. Yeah. 
Go on, Megan. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, it would be basically asking them to forfeit their role regionally, um, you know, to scale back their influence in other countries. Right. And, and similar to the 12 points we discussed right, earlier, right, right. Kinds of requests, which obviously are, are not things that Tehran would agree to. Right. So, unfortunately, that's where, like, uh, uh, right, capitulation. very... Right, so outright capitulation, but on, on that note, we are about to go back into a commercial break. Uh, Megan O'Toole and uh, Dr. Robert G. Uh, Rabil, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us this evening on Friday Night Live. I really appreciate your expertise opinion on, on this particular issue. Thank you very much. Thank you and have a wonderful so uh, Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Right, folks, that was uh, that was uh, Dr. Robert uh, Megan Atul, a leading journalist from leading organizations, giving us their view on uh, their perspective on the Iran and U.S. current, you know, fallout and, and current, you know, uh, ties or current issues, um, tensions. Uh, we'll be continuing to discuss that when we come back from a commercial break. We're going to go into a commercial break when we come back. Dr. Abu Bakr, Brother Zafar, your thoughts on this particular issue? Don't go away. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Until then, alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafi Shaban, and also with uh, brother Dr. Abu Bakr and brother Zafar here in the studio. We have just been discussing last hour with a number of academics, number of journalists, the current Iran and US tensions, a uh, number of different perspectives being put forward. Always great to hear from our listeners. 01582481822 is the number here in the studio. I know it can be one of those subject matters which is a bit complex uh, and not a, a subject matter that perhaps all of us can necessarily relate to but still I mean it's a it's a Muslim country uh, affecting and impacting the, the the Muslim world a lot of tensions at the moment with the with the US uh, and a lot of warmongering going on at the moment so I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have probably got a view on this particular subject matter zero triple seven nine four eight one eight double two if you want to send in your SMS and your WhatsApp messages what what do you think of the US attitude and US approach with regards to the nuclear deal, how it's just completely disregarded it and thrown it onto a side, right? Not to mention current Iran influence and politics in the region with the other GCC partners. What, what do you think in terms of the, the GCC countries and Iran and the current politicking amongst them? What do they sound like? What do they sound like? What do they behave like? I'd be interested to hear your views, right? But before I do that, let me bring in uh, some of my local experts here in the studio, inshallah ta'ala. Brother... Brother Zafar, firstly, welcome, and uh, secondly, you, you, you've been listening the last half an hour. Uh, you, you've heard, you know, some of my thoughts. You've heard our panelists and some of our experts. You know, you've probably been following this for a number of weeks now. What are you making of uh, this, Brother Zafar? Well, to be honest, I think what one question comes to to my mind is is why what drove America to change the direction? Mm. Why did they change? Why do they feel that there's a need to? Cancel its, its agreements um, and choose a different path. Very good question. And, and I think I think yeah. the, the only thing that you can think about mm. uh, is, uh, I mean, to be honest, the UAE and Saudis were happy with the agreement. I think there was, you know, uh, 
They didn't have any qualms about it. I think uh, earlier they had some. Uh, they were quite dissatisfied. Or you know the fact that there's, there's this deal made, which means peace with Iran, which means Iran gets you know a free hand for a bit of a you know a, a greater say in in the region, and, and they weren't necessarily happy with that, right? Yeah. But uh, I think that the only reason I can think of is the fact that Netanyahu and, and Israel weren't happy. Mm. And, and I think they weren't happy primarily because I think they were not party to, not directly at least anyway, the discussions. And they would have brought the Hamas uh, question uh, into the equation. Mm. Support for Hamas from from uh, from, uh, um, Iran. from from Iran. Mm. Uh, and so I think that I can think that that, that's the reason why the whole thing has been, been was removed from the agreement was was basically uh, abrogated. Mm. Uh, in terms of, I think there, there's a fundamental belief uh, in Israel and also in America, uh, and I think you saw signs of it a couple of years ago when there was uh, anti-regime riots. Um, there was an attempt to have a, a quote-unquote type of a revolution there, similar mm. to the stuff that you saw, you know, saw in Ukraine and stuff like that. No. Ostensibly, I think the Iranians would have said the Americans and the Europeans or whatever were behind no, it. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think there's still a belief right, that underneath there is a simmering uh, disenfranchisement and, and disconnect with the leadership. And they mm. think if applied pressure... Uh, they will like surface. Uh, yeah, they, they will. They will basically come to the surface and and remove this regime. And if you if you yeah. remember, also United States is a very close ally of Iran for many many years. Up yeah. until the re- revolution, yeah. Iran under the Shah was very mm. close to America. Mm. In fact, yeah, Iran used to be the the whip hand right mm. in the Middle East uh, for America. Mm. Yeah. Surely it's folly that America can ever think after all of these decades that they're going to be able to rekindle any sort of relationship well, with Iran that they had. had that was there's there obviously, the there's obviously mm. a belief. There's obviously a belief in certain quarters, uh, and there might be some evidence for it as well. Uh, the fact that uh, you know, the, you know, the Islamic Revolution is not very long, to be honest. It's, yeah. you know, it's only relatively speaking. Uh, and it's been under under sort of sanctions and pressures of all yeah. sorts of different uh, types. It's about forty years now, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, constantly trying to survive effectively yeah, under yeah, sanctions yeah. and all that. Right. So there's obviously a belief, uh, and I think what Trump is trying to do is is trying to bring that to a fore mm. uh, with all his pressures and and I think he's he's bluffing to be honest, like he did with Kim Jong Un. Yeah. He, he's bluffing and he's trying to just trying his, to get a better deal, is he? Yeah. He's, what, he's tr- what, what, well, well, you, you see, what was interesting for me was uh, Megan, right? Megan O'Toole, uh, her comment with regards to his Trump trying to create his own legacy, right? His Trump trying to create. I mean, it was an interesting viewpoint, right? That you know, you, you had the Obama administration that that took their claim for, all right, this is the deal that we've done, and here comes Trump and says, no, I'm not happy with that deal at all, and, and all, a number of other factors that are at play. Israel is 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 a factor, but it's a red herring. We use that and we hear that all the time. That the, some of the Gulf partners weren't necessarily too happy with it. So all right, let me go back and, and leverage that, and you can again get more political leverage from from the GCC. You know, in terms of UAE and and the Saudis, and then they were raising this issue of Syria. I'm, I'm not sure about Syria, and, and you know, Iran's been working with 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 the states. For for a long time, in terms of in Syria, in Iraq, you know, well, look, it's if, been a even factor. Syria, you saw a lot of the post nine eleven, a lot mm-hmm. of the renditions, a lot of the, uh, I guess the, 
um, outsourcing of torture mm. uh, took place in Syria. Yeah, yeah. So, so Syria wasn't such a bad guy, so yeah. to speak, yeah, yeah, not so long ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think at the end of the day, um, I think that there is a, there's a, I think tr- Trump uh, wanted to try something unusual, something yeah. different from previous uh, administrations to see if he can come up with a, a better result. And he tried with North Korea, and I think, yeah. to be honest, he's failed there. Absolutely. And he's, tr- he's trying it in, in Iran. Uh, the the bottom line is is that that uh, you know um, this is not going to go very far. It's, it's yeah. a bluff, and I think yeah. there, there's a, there's a big risk of accidental sort of uh, accidental uh, or, war by or, an accident. Yeah. I, I, I tell you what I read earlier. It was an, it's a, there's a risk a high risk of an accidental war by an accidental man who became president. Hmm. Right. So yeah. that that's what, that's what commentators are saying. But uh, you're right. I mean, a big juggling act, high risk strategy, uh, a number of play, you know elements at play here. Uh, trying to restrict Iran in terms of its uh, you know influence in the region. Trying to appease Saudi and the UAE and other partners in in, in the region. And at the same time, trying to create, create an own uh, you know legacy for oneself. And trying to corner Iran to say, yeah, we're having a very tough line on Iran. But w- w- will it result? Will it result in the deal that the Amer- that that really uh, you know Trump is trying to seek L- last quick point because before we look move on the, to the next topic look at this situation logically they've been pumping money into uh, the, the the war against the Houthis in Yemen for years and years now yeah. there's no sign of that coming to an end yeah. do they really think mm. that if they end up albeit as you said by accident in a confrontation in a mm. war with Iran that Iran would back down and give up mm. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, Iran is not Iran is not is, Iran is not a country like Iraq where you had it as a, as a literally a bipolar country. You know, with a large section Shia and a large section right. Sunni, Sunni, sorry, and okay. and there um, just one just one um, fact religious faction. Okay. All right, it's po- very different. Doctor Abu Bakr, sorry to be rude and interject, but we've got to move on to the next topic because I've got a panel. You know, a guest. Waiting on 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 the on the call, uh, but we will come back to 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 you and some of your thoughts. I, I know you're very, you know, passionate about your some of your opinions. Uh, I'm more than happy to hear that and, and get our uh, listeners to also listen in. But we need to move on to the next topic. Similar, uh, not far away in terms of geographies. We're moving on to Turkey. Now it's an interesting development in Turkey, right? So uh, Turkey held its uh, munis- municipal uh, elections in March, right, uh, amidst an economic recession and Erdogan. AKP party lost right all major cities including Ankara and Istanbul to the opposition Republican Party People's Party right so they went long story short went back to the you know the what was it the election body electoral body if I if I remember claiming electoral fraud citing some irregularities if I can say that word correctly went back to the polls and they've lost the elections again, right? So they lost the elections again to the opposition candidate, Ikram Imamoglu, if I've said that word correctly, by 806,000 votes. So that's quite a lot, quite a lot. So the Justice and Development Party lost by almost nearly a, nearly a million votes, right? So, and this is the biggest defeat of the governing party in close to two decades, right? So let's get some expertise view on what's been happening in Istanbul and what's happening with Erdogan and Erdogan's uh, Justice Party. Uh, Yusuf Arim. 
Right, so Yusuvarim from uh, Turkey Analyst uh, from TRT World. Uh, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Friday Night Live. Hopefully you can hear me and uh, you're able to listen uh, to hear me. Alaikum salam. Yes, I hear you. Right, Yusuf. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you very, very well. But but a bit confused in terms of what's happening. This was supposed to be an election victory for Erdogan after the electoral body called for a, a re-election and gave uh, you know Erdogan plenty of time to do all of the kind of you know po- you know the politicking and and uh, you know going out and reaching out to the people. What what what's what's happened and what's gone wrong? Well, now, after the March 31st election, the AK Party, the governing AK Party, claimed that there were irregularities. They took it to the Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission reviewed the evidence, and they called for a rerun. Now, even though the governing AK Party had the legal right to request a rerun, and they had the ruling in their favor, it looks like the public was not happy with that decision. So... It looks like a miscalculation on behalf of the governing party. And the CHP, the more secular elitist party, was able to capitalize on this miscalculation, and they were able to mobilize their voters. They were able to reach out to the swing votes, the Kurdish vote in Istanbul. They were able to reach out to some other important groups, people who were disgruntled, uh, former AK Party voters, and they were able to comfortably win the second time around dealing, uh, dealing uh, the AK Party their second defeat in two months in Istanbul. Mm. Now, the AK Party was, has been governing Istanbul for 25 years. Wow. They've, well, they've been governing him for 18 years, but even the seven years before preceding the creation of AK Party, was, uh, President Erdogan was the mayor before AK Party was formed, so we can put back their, bring back their rule in Istanbul for 25 years. So this was a this was a big change in power. Right now, you have the CHP coming in. Uh, Ekrem Imamoglu just got his certificate of election and assumed office yesterday for the first time. There was a very healthy crowd greeting him on his way to his office for his first day of work, and it's going to be interesting now. Right. Even just though, just, uh, just before you continue, Yusuf. So that that that's a huge change, right? That's a huge change. You know, what, what, what are the? Okay, I I hear the the potential resentment and uh, from the populace. I hear the potential, you know, capitalization of the swing vote. Right. That that makes sense to me. But is there a more underlying message here with regards to you know the the shift of of, of the of the of the populace with you know from Erdogan's AKP party towards this you know CHP right what's the underlying tone and, and kind of reasons more you know more than just the fact that there's a bit of resentment in terms of the revote is is it the economic crisis and, and the bit of you know I, I what's happening I think I think the economics have a lot to do with it right. you know when Erdogan first first came to power in 2002. Mm. Uh, He came in off the back of an economic crisis. There was a huge crisis in 2001. He came in and he was able to drop inflation from the 70%, 60% down to single digits within a couple years. Turkey's growth skyrocketed to five, six, seven percent. The the foreign exchange rate was under control. The dollar was under control. And Turkey experienced a very long period of economic prosperity and stability, probably the longest in its modern history. So mm. uh, economic, economic, the economy has always been his bread and butter, and he was always able to deliver on that with high growth, low inflation, low uh, interest rates. But lately the, lately, the economy has been on shaky footing. The dollar's 
almost uh, I mean almost doubled in about the last three and a half four years. So once uh, his greatest tool uh, been taken from him with the yeah. shaky footing of the economy, of course it's the, uh, some disgruntled people. Unemployment's a little higher than it's yeah. been. Yeah. So Momola, the CHP candidate, was able to capitalize on on this. And when you couple it with the rerun, now you also have to look at it this way. It, Erdogan's candidate basically versus not just the major opposition's candidate, there's two or three other parties that were supporting the other candidates as well. So it was right. basically like right. a coalition of parties. Okay. Uh, it was basically the, it was basically Erdogan's candidate versus everybody against right, Erdogan coupled right, up right. into one so group. So that, that makes a bit more sense, yeah. Okay. So everyone seems to have uh, kind of allied against uh, Erdogan and, and, and his camp. And his, uh, camp. So, the, the other uh, the, so it, I mean, he, yeah, it was a coalition of political parties. It All wasn't right. like it, it wasn't just one party putting up their candidate and, mm. and the AK party lost. Right, so, no. I w- w- when we look at it, it's a local election. I don't think I mean it's an important result, but it shouldn't be exaggerated, and it shouldn't be right. calculated like a general election. Right. Yeah, and that's the point, right. brother, brother uh, Zafar, You you want to make a point? Yeah, right? that, that's the point I was trying to make. Right, is the fact mm. that it is a local election, it's a mayoral mm. election. The fact mm. that it's it's getting a lot of prominence, right, seems to indicate that there are a lot of people who are not happy outside you know, one of Turkey. Of the questions so yeah, uh, one of the questions I get asked a lot when talking about this topic is, I you know, Erdogan made a statement a couple of years ago. The one who loses Istanbul loses Turkey. Now that's uh, that was a statement that has been brought up a lot after this election, and yeah. many mm-hmm. people are now questioning our party's power. Well, you know, you said yeah. the man that loses Istanbul loses Turkey. Does, does that still does that still hold weight? Yeah. Now you got to look at this play. Okay, yes, our party's lost the mayor's spot. But our party took all, all has the majority in all the city council seats, which are all elected positions as well. He may have lost the his party may have lost the mayor's spot, but they still they're still the number one party when you bring it down to the city council level and when you bring it down to the provincial administrators level. So, in reality, yes, Imamolu is now the mayor, but he has a city council and uh, provincial administra- administration boards chock full of AK Party members that he's going to have to work with. So he's made a lot of promises, and to deliver on those promises, he's going to have to work with the majority AK Party councils. So mm. there's going to have to be a lot of compromises on both sides, and we're going to have to see how that's going to go. Right, so you're, t- you're saying it's not, time for pan- it's not time to panic quite yet? It's, it's a wake-up call. A wake-up it's call. Not, mm. It's not... It's a wake-up call. It's not. It's not disaster mode or anything like that. But it's a wake-up call. It's hey, get your act together. Time. The complacency of winning 17, 18 years in a row. That's got to go. And it's time to work hard again. All but right. So what, this so, is a good thing. A, so what, what, a what strong you, what, opposition is always good for a democracy. So, mm-hmm. so what do you think Erdogan's target is? To I understand that there's uh, there's uh, uh, a treaty is is due to be. Uh, concluded in 2023. Do you think that's a milestone that Erdogan is is uh, aiming at uh, to to be there and then well, see through 20, a new transition? 2023, 
2023 is the 100th year of the Republic. So yeah. uh, symbolically, it's very, very important. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he would like to be in, he would like to remain in power at, through the 100th year, which, which is very important. It's an election year again, the 100th year. Right. Mm. But so, it's, all, it's also when the, the treaty, it's also when the Treaty of Versailles, I think, expires as well, doesn't it? Which kind of frees the uh, treaty, Turk- Yeah, the, of Lausanne. In Lausanne, sorry, yeah, that's right. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about what's in the treaty and the secret parts of the agreements. Now that 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 enters kind of the conspiracy realm, so we don't really know what's in the secret parts. I I don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about anything that's not fact. Hmm. But there's always a lot of talk about that in some circles. But that's that's that enters the tinfoil hat realm. I don't want to get into anything like that. But, but, but as, as, as you said, twenty twenty three is the year of elections, right? For, in, in Turkey, so uh, at least some of the commentators are saying, all right, plenty of time for getting a bit of a fresh foot, yeah. uh, consolidate, you know, regroup, and and really get ready for for the for the elections. You know, in, in uh, what is it, two three years time or whatever, right? Three years time, right? Oh, so well, yeah, four years time. Maybe four years time. Turkey's foreign policy agenda right now yeah. is just chock full. Uh, the the president that the G20 meeting right now. He's yeah. meeting he's meeting Putin in about 10 hours. He's meeting Erdogan in about 15 hours and then after G20 wraps up he's going to China to meet uh, for a 4-day working visit with uh, Xi Jinping. So the top 3 world leaders, he's meeting all 3 of them this week. Mm. So you have S400s, the Russian air defense system on the agenda. You have F35s getting possibly kicked out of the program. You have maybe CAPSA sanctions being enacted if they get kicked out of the F-35 program and by the S-400s. You have Idlib right now, regime soldiers attacking Turkish positions. Mm. You have the YPGA, the Syrian affiliate of the PKK terror group on Turkey's border. You have America partnering with them. You have a safe zone. I could go on and on about all of these, any one of these topics are massive topics and you have the government right now trying to manage and navigate I mean, I haven't even talked about the tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean with Greece, yeah. Cyprus, Israel. So there's a lot on the agenda, and it's going to depend on how any how every one of these major foreign policy decisions are navigated. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, as you say, it's not it's not quite binary, right? So it's quite dynamic and quite quite a, a complex, you know, web that we're we're looking at. But but Yusuf, I'd be interested. I mean, in terms of the the recent, you know, you know, weak economy. What what's been the you know the the number one issue, you know, driving that in terms of the the, the weaker economy within Turkey for over the last you know a, a year or two? Well, the two two there's a couple of drivers. Mm-hmm. A lot of the growth has been credit based. So right. you have a lot of debt, not not just public sector debt, mm. but public se- sector debt is easier solved. You have private sector debt, which yeah. is harder to solve with government intervention and legislation. You have uh, you so, have so very similar to what we've seen right in, in, in in Europe and and in, in the U.S. To be honest with you, exactly, exactly. Mm. You have you have unemployment. You have a very young population growing very very quickly and. You have to find jobs for this population. Mm. Obviously, the threat of CATSA sanctions, the, the 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 rise in the dollar from sanctions resulting from the Pastor Brunson crisis from last year. Right, right. So you have the dollar just rising and rising. And you have a lot of imported goods in the country. Obviously, when the dollar rises, this impacts the consumer. And 
anytime the consumer feels that impact in the economy, that's when you that's when you right. get some disgruntled right. voters. So right. hmm. these are questions that need to be solved. Uh, right. and we're expecting a cabinet reshuffle most likely in the upcoming month, uh, upcoming month or two. So we're going to see maybe there could be new people coming in. It's a possibility, and but, the economy but, is going to be very, very high yeah, on the agenda. But, 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 I mean, new people coming in, but any new policies that you think that that will drive that change, you know, to, to, to turn the economy around? I mean, you're talking about credit, you're talking about private credit, you know, public credit. I mean, this, this is the same kind of endemic problems that we're seeing in the West, uh, you know, endemically part of the capitalist kind of, a, you know, the solution and, and economy. Uh, and, and it's just the bubble that we're going through and experiencing globally. So anything really that was, that's going to change over the next three years, do you think, in terms of policies in Turkey? Well, one of the most important things is obviously interest rates for uh, the AK Party. Interest rates have always remained low over the years, low mm. for Turkey at least. And um, obviously that has driven credit-based uh, credit, uh, growth. Uh, now, some people are calling for, for an IMF program that's been mentioned, but Erdogan mm. has completely, uh, completely called that off. He's not interested in working with the IMF. He said that he's not interested at all. Now, one of the things that Turkey's trying to do is invest more in technology and yes. manufacturing of higher value added products, yeah. which would definitely help exports. And they're trying to benefit right now from a high dollar by increasing exports and uh, right. focusing on tourism as well. Hmm. So we're going to have to see. I mean, I'm expecting more, you know, more news and more reforms in the economy, more structural reforms coming up since... Erdogan doesn't have to deal with an election for four years, so he can yeah. take his time to actually do some reforms without worrying about how domestic support is, because obviously sometimes reforms in the short term, they yield negative results, but in the long term, that's when you truly benefit. So when you don't have to worry about an election, you can do the painful, the, the necessary painful reforms. All right, you, you, Yusuf, we're about a minute and a half away from a commercial break. A hundred years uh, in 2023 20, in terms of the, the secular state in the, that we have in Turkey. It's also almost, you know, those since 1924-23 when you had the, the, the demise of the, the official abolishment of the Ottoman Empire to Ottoman Caliphate in, in Turkey. Well, what uh, is, is there a, a, any, uh, you know, kind of a, a much gossip or conversation Conversations or, or you know calls towards you know that kind of uh, the uh, the Turkish history in Turkey at the moment. You, you know now uh, the the CHP party Ekrem yeah. Mamolo, the new mayor of Istanbul, his party is Atatürk's party. Yeah. Atatürk formed his party, and uh, you know secularism. Turkey is a Muslim country. It's about yeah. I believe ninety five percent Muslim, mm. and that is. But at the same time. Secular, that secularist value is written into its DNA. Mm. Now, I remember when President Erdogan was first elected. Unfortunately, you you've only got 20 seconds. Minister. You've only got 20 seconds, so you'll okay. have to... When, President, when, when, Prime Minister, when Prime Minister Erdogan was first elected, many people yeah. were very concerned, being a conservative. Yeah, yeah. They talked about, they had fears of him bringing Sharia law, this right, or that. Right. You know, it's been 18 years. Yeah. Nothing's changed. Turkey right. is still secular. It's just embraced its conservative side right. more. All right. So nothing to fear. Oh. I have a feeling four years later, President Erdogan will be able to Put it, bring it back together and win right. the election. All right, fantastic, yeah. Yusuf. Thank you very much for your expertise uh, and, and your you know for, for in, insight in, in terms of Turkey and the t- Turkish political scene. Thank you very much for joining us on Friday Night Live, uh, Yusuf Irim.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, folks, that was uh, Yusuf Irim from TRT World giving us a fantastic insight into Turkey. We're going, we're going into a commercial break. We'll be back in, in a couple of minutes when we'll continue the conversation with my guests in the studio. Until then, Salaamu Alaikum wa You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to Friday Night Live with me Hafi Shaban on this uh, Friday the 28th of June lovely afternoon lovely early evening on the Friday the 28th of June we are and we are into our last half an hour of the show and uh, mashallah it's been a very very informative discussion over the last hour and a half with some fantastic experts mashallah Great work by the the Friday Night Live team once again to line up a number of fantastic academics, uh, commentators, political commentators, uh, and uh, representatives from the the media world, right, to give us some in- interesting insight into a the first topic that we were discussing, which is the U.S. Iran tensions in the region at the moment, and then be discussing what's been happening in Turkey and getting a, a perspective on uh, on the developments in Istanbul in Turkey. So very 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 insightful uh, you know I had my uh, uh, opinions and my views uh, you know happily corrected uh, and redirected by the experts right and also listening to me or listening to the discussion in the studio has been uh, Dr. Abu Bakr and uh, Brother Zafar so Dr. Abu Bakr had his opportunity earlier to give his views and he's going to get plenty of opportunity in the last half an hour inshallah but Brother Zafar uh, y- y- your thoughts in fact, you did, you did ask a couple of questions, didn't you, this time? Uh, to yeah, I, to, to be honest, there the, the are obviously Erdogan has made a lot of, lot of enemies, mm. uh, and, and there are there are people out outside of Turkey who want to use any headline to try and sort of bring down our pegger to. Uh, the only problem is is that um, uh, although this you know the, this election result in Istanbul might be a wake-up call like the previous uh, uh, presenter suggested. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily uh, the end of the line. But having said that, right, I think part of the reason why you see in a lot of countries, a lot of the leaders are limited uh, to two terms uh, in their office is because after a little while, the public does tend to get a little bit dis- disenfranchised and they need change. Change is, I think, seen as a good thing. So I think, you know, I know he's waiting for the 2023, mm. but it, it might be useful to try and, well, try not to stand after that, so to speak, and get somebody else in, otherwise he's well, quite uh, might I, I was say, does the public get disenfranchised, or is it that the bubble actually bursts of these economies? I mean, well, no, if you, if you, isn't if you, it a similar thing that we're seeing in Europe, we've seen in America, you have a... Well, you it is, but you know, the, the way... It gives you a, the, a, a, the boom, and then it gives you the bust, right? Yeah, the, the, way, the, the way I... The, the reason is because I think history tells you, right, that after a little while, people want to see a change, right, and the leadership guests... Get they get bored of, of leadership effectively, mm. uh, but yeah, the economic bubble is right, uh, yeah. and I think there have been some, some uh, I guess. Uh, so so Turkey has been running into or America has been running into Turkey or vice versa. Yeah. They, have, they have had sort of uh, uh, issues with each other, and I think the economy uh, took a bit of a knock. I think the last time there was a bit of a uh, a, a dollar exchange, but there, there are other things like. 
you know, Turkey, like the the previous sort of person um, mm. uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, there are some issues that America has to sort of deal with Turkey. Okay. Like All right. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna move on to a last quick story that we've got. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a breaking. At least I, I I thought it was breaking news because I hadn't followed this. But there's apparently been a twin suicide attack in Central Tunis. Uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I think very recently, and we've got a. We've got a guest who's going to probably try to give us some background. No, we, we haven't. We're, we're, we're finding difficulty trying to connect to Laili uh, Faroudi, who's the journalist for the Financial Times and Al Jazeera English based in Tunis, right? So we're, we're having difficulty in getting through to uh, our, our, our guests. So until we, we get through to our guests, we're going to move on, right? So Abu, Abu Bakr, you, you had a number of uh, stories that you were quite eager to, to, to share with our listeners and, and give some, some thoughts on. Well, I've, I've got I've got to share this. Um, this this is the result of a YouGov poll, poll, and this has been reported in um, the Independent with um, um, uh, Independent. Yes, yeah, been, in, yeah. been reported Independent in the last uh, couple of days, and uh, with the interview of uh, one of the members of the Conservative Party. And uh, it alleges here two-thirds of the Conservative Party members believe parts of Britain operate under Sharia law. A new poll has shown amid a mounting Islamophobia scandal. Right. So stop, stop and, and repeat, right? I, 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 am I hearing myself correctly? Say that again? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reading it verbatim. <laughs> Two-thirds of Conservative Party members believe yeah. parts of Britain operate under Sharia law. A new poll, poll has shown amid a mounting Islamophobia uh, scandal. Right. A YouGov poll found almost half of Tories also believed in the myth of no-go zones, where, quote, non-Muslims are not able to enter, and 39% thought Islamist terror acts, ref- quote, reflected widespread hostility to Britain amongst the Muslim community. You need to understand why this is so significant. Yeah. This we, is the, we are this, discuss right, that. I've, this I've is the Tory party. Okay. This is the yeah. Tory party membership. Yeah. The Tory party membership is 160,000 people. Mm. So two thirds of them, about 66% of them, this is what they believe. That's These incredible. are the people, mm. exclusively, yeah. that are about to elect. Yeah. Our new Prime Minister. Yeah. All right. So hold on to that thought. Let me go on to our guest, and I'm going to come back to to continue that conversation with you. All right. So we're, we're we're moving on to that next story that I was mentioning earlier, uh, and we we hopefully have on on the call Lady Faroudi, who is a journalist for the Financial Times and Al Jazeera English, based in Tunis. Uh, Faroudi, uh, assalamualaikum, and welcome to Friday Night Live uh, here from 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 the Luton offices in in the UK. Uh, hi, Hafez. Thanks for having me on. Ah, fantastic! Thank you very much for for joining us. Right, so so I'm uh, I've I've this I've just seen these headlines. I I have to admit I haven't followed this story at all. But a, a development story in terms of the twin suicide attacks is it in 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 Rock Central Tunis? Yeah. Um, so yesterday we uh, yesterday morning at around uh, ten eleven o'clock. There were uh, two two terrorist attacks, suicide attacks that happened in the centre of Tunis. So the first one was on the main avenue, right. um, targeting um, targeting a police car, and then the second one happened about ten minutes later 
um, and it was in around like a ten-minute drive away, um, targeting the counter-terrorism unit, the national counter-terrorism unit of Tunisia. Um, they weren't able to enter, and so they glued themselves up in the in the car park. All right. Okay. So that that's an uh, in, interesting development. And and, and who's uh, claimed uh, responsibility, or is is that an investigation still ongoing at the moment? I mean, the so ISIS have claimed later, quite a lot later in the day, ISIS right. claimed um, right. the terrorist attack. The okay. um, the Tunisian authorities have identified the two um, the two individuals who who are both um, dead in the suicide attack, but they haven't released any details on who they are and um, yeah any results of their investigations, which I think are ongoing. Mm, okay, uh, and and what what is the current you know kind of uh, feeling on on the ground? What what is the government saying about these attacks? So what what is the talk uh, in, in, on the ground with regards to this? I mean, it was really kind of straight after the um, straight after the explosion. I think there was I, I was actually quite nearby when when it happened, and I mean I didn't feel anything where I was. Um, which shows that it wasn't it wasn't a huge explosion. But speaking to people afterwards that were in the immediate vicinity, um, I think it must have been yeah quite shocking to yeah, yeah. have been near that and when it was happening. So I think just after it happened, people kind of running the opposite direction, quite panicked. Mm. Um, but soon after, I mean, all the cafes were stayed open. Everyone everyone went back to normal quite quickly. Right. Um, and and the Prime Minister Yusuf Shahid, he came and kind of gave a public statement calling for people not to panic and he put the operation down to, yeah, and it, he called it an attempt to destabilise the Tunisian economy right before the tourist and electoral season. Right, so so that's got nothing to do with the, the president who was rushed to a hospital, I think, immediately after, uh, shortly after those incidents that, that happened. They're not related, right, at all? Uh, I wouldn't see them as related. Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Fine. Uh, and you're cur- you're currently based out of Tunisia, and you've been based out of Tunisia for a while. Is is that is that correct? Uh, no. I mean, I've been here since um, the beginning of this year. All right. Okay. So yeah. so 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 what what is the the kind of uh, developments in in the Tunisian society over the I, I guess at least for for the last year? You can probably comment on and not not well before that. But uh, is 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 it a lot more stable than what than what the kind of scenes that we've been seeing on on the TVs over the last couple of years since the the Arab Spring? Yeah. I mean, I think the the general the general feeling in terms of security if we're talking about mm. security is that there is that it has improved a lot since since 2015 um and i mean if you look at the the scale of these attacks they were i mean it was quite a small it was quite a small attack there was one fatality um but i mean in terms of the material and the coordination that they were able to get together there is quite limited and the um and so i think that yeah, the, there's a feeling that the security uh, efforts of the Tunisian government has definitely improved over the over the last few years. Um, and I think it's important to note as well that the um, the attacks they they targeted um, the police. So out out of the injuries, they were mostly um, police officers and some a few. So I think it was. Uh, one police officer died, um, five other police officers were injured, and then three civilians were injured. 
Right. Um, so th- these are attacks that are targeting police as opposed to tourists, which is the case in, in 2015. Right. Um, in terms of the general um, condition in the country, I mean, it's the elections this year. Right. Um, so it's quite, an, a, it's quite an important year for the country. It's the will be the third um, free election for Tunisia. Um, there is also a lot of discontent with the economic situation in right. the country. There's very high unemployment, high inflation, and people are um, yeah, finding it hard to, right. to get by. Because right. So, so that, that was going to be my next question in terms of society, the populace, you know, what are the challenges, day-to-day challenges, you know, what's been your experiences over the last year, you know, being in Tunisia? Uh, what are you seeing the daily struggles of, of the of the you know the in, the average individual there, uh, and 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 has it been much of a um, has, has there been much of a difference between what we're seeing you know now and versus where, where you know I mean the whole Arab Spring originated from 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 Tunisia. I don't know if you're able to make that comparison and and, and give a view on that, uh, Lily. I mean, you do hear a lot of people kind of referring to, well, it was like this before the revolution yeah. in terms of the economic situation. I mean, by every metric, um, the uh, kind of life, the living standards are lower now than they were before the revolution. So unemployment higher, wow. mm. um, the, uh, the buying, purchasing power um, is, is lower. So I think that whenever, I mean, whenever there's like a rise in in the the price of petrol, people are people really feel it very acutely. Right. Um, so I think that the those are, those are the sort of struggles that that people are facing is the mm. um, the the dinar is um, kind of depreciating value um, even more, and so people are just kind of struggling to um, to make ends an, meet while like prices keep rising. Right. Um, I think that. Sorry, carry on. No, no, I was going to say, and have you seen any signs of discontentment coming out into the streets in terms of the public, you know, showing their dissatisfaction? Mm. Have you seen any of that, uh, you know, what we were accustomed to in, in the past, or has that not really surfaced at the same levels? Yeah, I mean, the there are protests all the time. The right. people are, I, I think that's also a sign of, I mean, there's freedom of expression um, now. People can right. come out into the streets and, mm. and express their, their okay. discontent, which which they do. Um, I think the um, the number of there's there's an organisation here that counts the number of protests and um, and it's increased kind of exponentially over the right. um, over the last few years. Um, and so, but I think that there is also a, a sort of frustration that people. Are like well, we can go out into the streets and and it may be like and but then nothing changes, nothing happens. Yeah. Um, but there's but no, there's definitely yeah, people are um, yeah, expressing that discontent. And I think also, I mean, you can see with the number of people that are wanting to leave the country, that's also um, that's also an indication. That, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. All right. Th- thank you very much, Lady uh, Farudi, uh, for for your time uh, this evening and for for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and hopefully we can speak to you sometime in in the near future again.
problem. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Okay, gents, sorry, listeners, that was Lady Farudi, journalist of the for the Financial Times and Al Jazeera, English based in Tunisia. I was expecting to only be discussing with 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 the journalist for a short while, but I thought it was interesting to actually get an update in terms of what's been happening in Tunisia for the last couple of years. It's been quite fairly quiet, and I for one, I really haven't been up to date in terms of what's been happening on the ground. How, how things are you know so many years on so that that was that was interesting and fascinating right so 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 listeners we are coming into the last 10 uh, 10 minutes of the of the show uh, and i really want to go back to uh, dr abu Bakr because i know you're so eager to 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 share some of the stories that you wanted to, to discuss earlier so let's go right back into uh, the story that you were sharing with us before we had to go and go back live to, to Tunisia. And this is the two uh, yeah, the thirds of the. Yeah, a YouGov poll has shown that two thirds of Conservative Party members, I'm quoting here, believe parts of Britain operate under Sharia law. A new poll has shown amid mounting, uh, mounting <laughs> Islamophobia <laughs> Council. And now, the reason why this is so, so significant, listeners, when, when we're talking about Conservative Party members, we need to understand what that means. That's 160,000 people. That's how many Conservative Party members there are. These are the people, only the people, who get to vote on who's about to become our next Prime Minister. So these are the members, not the MPs, right? The, no, mem- no, the MPs members well. of the party. Oh, the yeah. Mem- well, yeah, yeah, well, yes, the mem- of co- yes, but of course, the MPs are members as well. Yeah, yeah, as well. correct, correct, correct. Um, uh, but you, but but there's there's what? Why is it three hundred? There's there's three hundred and three conservative MPs. If you correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's what it is. That's right. Um, so let's face it. Compared to the hundred and sixty thousand membership, that that yeah, Well, if you think about this, it's a it's a country of sixty four million, sixty five million, yeah. and rising, mm. and you got hundred and sixty thousand people who will decide the fate of the nation. Mm. <laughs> mm. But I mean, in, in terms of that, that opinion, I mean, it, it, what, what is it? Is is it Islamophobia uh, or is, is it just outright I've prejudice? Got, I've, I've got another quote. Is it just ignorance? I've, I've, of, what, what is it? I've got another quote here that that I want to add. The, the counter extremist group, hope not hate. They've called on the leadership candidates, both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, and uh, Jeremy Hunt, sorry, um, to quote address the Islamophobic Slobiev crisis in their party, uh, from the grassroots to the great offices of state. Conservative members buy into racist myths, with almost half unwilling to have a Muslim prime minister. Now right. remember, we had Sergeant Javid standing, <laughs> like, even though he tried to dissociate himself. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, from the grassroots to well, what? What, what organisation was that? Sorry, from what organisation was that? Hope from? not hate. Right. Uh, so it continues. What, what they were saying? Uh, from grassroots to the great officers' state, conservative members buy into racist myths, with almost half unwilling to have a Muslim prime minister, and only eight percent being proud to have one. And most denying that there's even an issue to confront, said campaign's director, Matthew McGregor. Right, the Islamophobia crisis in the Conservative Party, uh, Brother Zafir, is not a new uh, agenda item, is it? No, I think that Lady of Us has been complaining about mm. it for like, many years. And I think we've had on the programme, um, Mohammed Amin, I think, who has been expelled from his group. Uh, I think the Conservative Muslim Forum. I don't know what they did apart from the fact that he used to come on us in no. radio and, and and but he he had campaigned, I guess, uh, quite um, you know qu- quite loudly about mm. the 
his experiences, I guess, and what the experiences of many of the, the Muslims within the party yeah. were. Now, uh, in, a poll, in a poll carried out shortly before Sajid Javid was knocked out of the leadership contest, 43% of members, so we're still talking about that 160,000 people, agreed with the statement that, quote, I would prefer not to have the country led by a Muslim. Mr. Javid, had, now, Mr. Javid, of course, had tried to um, make his fellow leadership candidates commit to an independent investigation um, on Did air. You? Yeah, on Did air. Yeah, and I think yeah, all of them air. said yes. All of them said yes. Into Conservative no, Party Islamophobia during a live turn of And they agreed. Debate. Did, 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 I, th- I thought you yeah. suggested it, and then Jeremy Hunt and uh, Ma- Ma- you know Ma- Michael Grove, they just kind of sidelined that completely and no, 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 they did, no, discuss no, other topics. Uh, uh, they, they, they did say it, but I think mm. that some of the responses from their side, they wanted to try and see if they could find something within their circle to relate to Muslims. No, with so, so all, all no, of these no, facts that no, you're quoting, with all of this, where does that, where does that, where does that go? What does it? What is the message? Well. I, I'm, I'm continuing now. Despite despite their views, mm. despite the views which 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 I've now read, fewer than one in ten, ten percent of members thought Islamophobia was an issue in the party, mm. while almost eighty percent denied there was a problem. Mm. Right, so we're in we're in denial. I mean, I mean, I mean, what 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 is that message that goes out there to to the to the populace and to the Muslim community, then political participation is that really something that you know? Well, it's a, it shows well, that it's, 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 it's something fa- that works. Let's face face facts. Mm. I, I interpret that as saying, well, if you if you're a Muslim, you have no value in this country. We don't want you to take an active place in this country. We don't want you Muslims to have a voice in the country, and certainly not. Perhaps in the Conservative Party, perhaps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So a uh, suspicious That's the question I'm the, 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 the Muslim community, right? Yeah. All right but so, um, if we, if, if, so if anyone is listening from the local Conservative Party Association, mm. uh, I believe they're up in um, Stopsley Village, if any of you would like to ring in and uh, address any of the questions that I've asked, notice I put them as questions just there. I was very careful. All right. Uh, ring in, ring in 01582481822 if, if you are listening and indeed and if you are able to, 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 to dial in. I, I want to move on from, from that story. Uh, no, Dr. Just, Dr. Just, just, just a quick if, point just before I finish. I know you had another story that you wanted to. Yeah. yeah. The reason why this poll is, is relevant because it wasn't a small poll. Small poll. They, they, they did poll 900 party members. Mm, wow! So out of that 160,000, it was almost 1,000 of the members. So n- near enough, about one in 160 of yeah. the members. So, so yeah. that's not an insignificant sample size. It's quite representative. If, if you were going to if you were going to sample the whole UK population at one percent, you know that 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 is a significant number of people. You oh. you would be sampling. You know, not far off, what, a million people. All right, we've got about three minutes left, and there was another story that you wanted to cover. Okay, now, just quickly. Uh, Now, the other one that is of interest, and this really is shocking. This is, again, uh, from The Independent. And we've we've got a situation, sh- uh, uh, parents, um, it, it's saying here in uh, the Independent, should not be allowed to selectively remove their children from religious education l- lessons, head teachers say. 
As studies are revealing, many withdrawal requests are over the teaching of Islam. More than two out of five school leaders and RE teachers have received requests from students to be withdrawn from teaching about one religion research from Liverpool Hope University has revealed. Islam is the dominant focus of these parent withdrawal requests. According to the study of 400 local school head head leaders and heads of religious education. Now, this is interesting because surely Mm. these are the people that actually need the interracial education to break down those barriers, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what is going on? We've now been governed by a Conservative Party since, what, 2008? Mm. Why is this not being addressed? Mm. Interesting point. You know, we, we are being branded in, in the press by some members of the community saying we do not want our young children being taught about any sexualized um, issues at all about relationships. They're too young. Hmm. But now with all the legisla- legislation changing, and, and, and this is not an issue. This is not an issue. Uh, this is not a, an issue a, a, about um, LGBT plus issues. Um, I, I fully agree, one hundred percent, that these people should be not victimised or whatever. But our young children, very young children, and I've seen as a teacher some of the things when I went to when, when I've, I've seen them uh, that, that, that are being proposed to being shown to children. It is with uh, a mother. And, and, and a father. Let's not go into the details. Well, no, I, I am. I am being polite. But it's a, yeah. with a mother and a father mm. laying under a blanket in the bed. Mm. Now, for mm. us as Muslims, that is not acceptable, mm. and, and they are really not under, uh, understanding the connotation. For us as Muslims, we believe we that our, right. we, we believe that our children should be not be taught this. Right. Okay. Uh, is another topic for for discussion on, on a different day. But yeah, there has been a lot of discussion around that, and a lot of discussion around the current legislation that's been brought in, which will take that right away from the parents, possibly. Right. But we will discuss that another day. Unfortunately, we have now come towards the end of the show. So. The, Jazakallah Dr. Abu Bakr for joining me in the studio. Fantastic to have you here after a number of weeks and, and Brother Zafar as usual. Great to have you here and to share some of your uh, your thoughts on some of the ho- topical uh, political issues. And unfortunately listeners that is it. We have run out of time. Two hours is over and hopefully inshallah we will be back next week with another, with another great lineup and, and, and fantastic lineup of, of guests and, uh, and experts to discuss uh, the topics that we will line up for you next week and until next week assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh you're listening to an inspire fm podcast making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on inspire fm